Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. I set up New Money Review in 2018 to cover the changes in money, which are getting faster, more chaotic and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies are incredibly volatile. Some are scams. But are others true stores of value? Could the technology behind cryptocurrencies, called blockchain, herald the biggest changes in accounting for five centuries and a new era of transparency in doing business? Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But cash is still there and in demand, especially amongst criminals. And where does all this leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? Our podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each week, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations make a big difference to us. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Stephen Deal, who's a software engineer based in London. Stephen, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by giving listeners a bit of background about yourself and your area of work? Hi, Paul. Uh, Nice to see you today. Um, So I'm Stephen Deal. Um, in my day job, uh, I'm the CTO of a fintech company here in London called Adjoint, uh, which builds corporate treasury solutions. Um, and I've also become kind of a crypto skeptical voices about um, the kind of emerging sector of cryptocurrency and that impact on on our markets these days. So I follow you on Twitter, and I've noticed your, you know, I, I guess, increasingly skeptical comments about what's going on in the world of cryptocurrency over the last few months, which is kind of the reason I wanted to have a chat. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, to talk to you about about that. But I mean, maybe you could take a step back for a second. You're, you're a software engineer and a computer scientist. And my first thought when preparing for the interview was that you know, most money these days is entries on a computer ledger somewhere. So it's some, in some form or another, it is kind of software. So you know, what's wrong with software people taking a step further and starting to make their own money? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, you're exactly right. Um, in today's world, most money is not actually any kind of you know, physical money held in a bank vault. It's you know, um, you know, entries in a database with an audit trail about where that money came from and a specific kind of legal context in which you know, people are allowed to create that money. And uh, most money that sits at banks is not physical anymore. It's completely digital. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, what we've seen in the past you know, 10 years or so is a lot of kind of movements to create kind of non-state currencies um, in the form of cryptocurrencies. And um, there's a lot of concerns around that because um, with these things being sort of non-state based, there's not a kind of existing kind of regulatory framework about, you know, who can create these things, whether they should have value um, and kind of controls around their use. And from a traditional fintech perspective, you know, we always want to make sure that uh, when we do create instruments for transactions that there's a you know controls around their use to prevent you know bad actors from um you know taking advantage of customers and with cryptocurrency i think the biggest issue i see is that there's uh, kind of a lack of insight into what these instruments actually are um whether they're actually currencies whether they're you know investments um whether they're commodities and um 
really, regulators have really been kind of struggling to keep up with this. And uh, we see a lot of risk from these instruments kind of passed down to consumers. And I would say that's pretty much the heart of what I see is the the problem is that the, these things yeah. are unclear in their use case and uh, they pass a lot of risks down to consumers. I suppose a counter argument would be that no one is forcing anyone to go onto their Binance accounts and buy Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever you know, the latest flavor of the cryptocurrency month is. I mean, what, what, so what is your concern specifically? It's about the lack of transparency as to who's behind some of these projects or specifically at a software level, lack of auditability. You know, what, could, you, could you dive a bit deeper into those topics and explain what concerns you most? Yeah, I mean, you're right in the sense that like nobody's forcing anybody to go, you know, do a wire transfer to, you know, some some shady exchange in the Cayman Islands or anything and buy some some, you know, you know, shady tokens or something. But, you know, these things are working their way into the larger economy as a whole. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, publicly traded equities, which are, you know, basically holding large amounts of cryptocurrencies. And so these things find their way into the general market. Um, and we're certainly going to see, you know, if things are left unchecked, that they'll be finding their way into things like pension funds and, you know, uh, you know ETFs. And, you know, there, there is a kind of exposure to the larger market as a whole. It's right small right now. Um, but, you know, if things are left unchecked, then that certainly that risk gets passed down to consumers. And it's not clear to me that there's pretty much adequate controls on uh, how these things fit into larger economy as a whole. And, you know, I, I, I'm particularly concerned about, you know, retail investors as well being particularly exposed to products that are, you know, come with a fair amount of you know, both counterparty risk, systemic risk, uh, you know, market risk. And a lot of consumers kind of really underplay the amount of, you know, <laughs> Uh, the risk they're taking on when they're kind of buy these investments and, you know, the education that um, people are getting around these things is often from, you know, social media or from, um, you know, online sources that are kind of, you know, have a vested interest in promoting them and not from sort of more traditional financial advisors. And so yeah. uh, it's not clear to me what, what kind of controls should be around retail investors on these things. And that's kind of an open question right now. Yeah, perhaps we could come on to the, you know, what would be the appropriate controls or regulatory framework uh, in a bit. But I read a blog of yours from a few weeks ago where you talked, where you linked the uh, January, February um, kind of frenzy to buy GameStop shares on the Robinhood app with Bitcoin and what you call the commoditization of populist rage. So, I mean, if I could paraphrase what you've said there, you, you, you're arguing basically that there's a a very unhappy uh, millennial generation that feels left out from you know, the property market, from the stock market, and they've they've kind of put, maybe been caught up in this trend of trying to f- what they see as a way of fighting back through you know the, using so- social media and coordinating their actions to bid up certain stocks, or in the case of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, digital tokens. But you think this is not a you know healthy way for people to be acting in your in according to your your blog. Well, whether it's healthy or not is sort of a, a separate question, but I think it's it's you're right. It's definitely a very real market phenomenon. Well, you think people are harming themselves by doing by behaving this way? I think they're taking on a great deal of risk onto themselves, and whether that's warranted or not is another question. But I think what we're seeing is that a lot of people, as you know, in the you know under forty generation, sort of the, the millennials, are you know legitimately there's a lot of 
economic studies to prove that they're you know not holding assets um, and they're not having long term savings and participation in the economy like previous generations have already had, and a lot of that's just you know. Um, that you know, home ownership is particularly down across millennials, and uh, you know, there's their their participation in the market as a whole is just not what our you know previous generations have had, and so from that perspective, you know, if people are looking to you know get exposure to things, you know, it makes sort of sense to buy riskier things because you know if you don't have the same opportunities, then of course you're going to want something that has kind of a more asymmetric upside, and so. You know, I think a lot of these risky products that people are investing in right now are, you know, a product of the fact that people just don't see a way to make a sizable return in the traditional ways that they, you know, previously did by, you know, putting it in the market and holding it for 10, 15 years, um, just because they don't have the assets to do that currently. And so, you know, from a certain kind of twisted logic, it kind of makes sense to, you know, you know, take on some more risk on some more products that have, you know, vastly more asymmetric upside. And I think there's just a lot of disenchantment with the financial system. Like, I certainly came of age during the financial crisis. And so, you know, if you come up in that kind of market, you know, where, you know, job prospects are very poor, you know, you're going to have a lot of anger at the, you know, the institutions that kind of created the whole institution. And so from that perspective, I think the narrative about, you know, let's create an alternative financial system is one that kind of resonates with a lot of younger people. And I think really you Bitcoin and these kind of alternative, you know, the story around alternative financial services is a very compelling one, whether that's actually being built by these things is a separate question. I would argue that case that it's not really like these things don't actually provide much anything other than just, you know, effectively what are it's gambling effectively. Um, and so that's my, my kind of thesis around, I think yeah. Bitcoin has kind of hijacked the populist rage narrative to kind of propose a story that kind of tenuously makes sense. But if you kind of dig into the details of it, it doesn't really seem very solid. Yeah. What about the? Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in your views as a software engineer and, and what you see from your you know colleagues and contacts uh, working in the same industry. You know, doesn't the uh, idea of uh, of having a project that is kind of self funded through um, token issuance make sense in some ways for for startups or for maybe highly experimental projects, things that with a, with a high chance of failure but but a, a small chance of a very large success. Doesn't the you know the idea of of allowing people to you know to perhaps go a slightly different route than the traditional limited company route and to issue tokens to to pre fund activities make sense for those kinds of uh, uh, very you know heavily software focused projects? In principle, I agree with that. Actually, uh, the premise that you could like raise outside of traditional like equity raise um, systems and basically go directly to consumers and sort of like crowdfunded equity raise. Um, but I think the problem with that is that, you know, with these kind of very early stage projects, um, just the nature of that is the fact that there's, you know, 95% of them are going to fail. Um, and I think a lot of people are basically, it creates some kind of moral hazard for entrepreneurs to represent, you know, projects that have grand visions and massive amounts of, you know, asymmetric returns for early investors, and then basically take the funds and then never really deliver on that. So I think we saw kind of a, a bit of this with the whole ICO bubble back in 2017, where, you know, you know, I think it was something on the excess of like $14 billion was raised in, in cryptocurrency like equivalents uh, for these kind of ICO projects. And we saw it all manner of you know highly ambitious projects uh, kind of come out of that, and 
from what I can tell, there's almost a hundred percent failure rate on all of that. Um, now you could say that that you know like startups also have a kind of particularly high failure rate, but you know to have basically like a hundred percent failure rate on these things and then have that passed down not to you know institutional VC funds but to consumers seems to be not an optimal situation. So I think the problem with that kind of these alternative equity raise investments or equity equivalent investments is that they, they really create a moral hazard for people to promise things that are just not technically feasible. And I've certainly seen plenty of sort of very, very ambitious technical projects uh, funded with these things that have kind of, you know, sat nowhere and then they kind of just never really manifest. And you can probably point to hundred or so of these ICO projects that did that. Uh, yeah, it all sounds. I mean, as you describe it, it all sounds very familiar to me, at least, uh, to the um, internet bubble of 1999, 2000, when all these dot com projects were launched. Some of them raised a lot of money in the in the public markets, and then within a couple of years, most of them had disappeared and, and gone bust. Um, uh, but at the same time, the infrastructure that was built out during that period helped, prove, you know, provide the foundation for the. The tech giants of today. So, you know, is it possible that you know ICO bubble notwithstanding, that something bigger is going to be built on the you know what's already happened, where the the, the trend started by Bitcoin? Whether it's new forms of exchange, you know, some of the cryptocurrency exchanges are now uh, happening on a you know operating on a very large scale, and the the volumes of trading are also very large. You know, are we are we, are we perhaps missing a, a a change in the narrative or a bigger shift that's taking place? So let me kind of unpack that into two parts here. So like there was the kind of the comparison to the early internet. Um, and a lot of people have kind of made that, that, you know, this cryptocurrency thing is, you know, it's in its nascent form right now, but it's going to kind of morph into something more, more real. And for sure, like during the dot-com bubble, there was a lot of sort of froth in the markets. Um, but I think you have to realize is that the early, you know, dot-com projects that were being funded, they're all being funded by, you know, accredited investors. You know, they did traditional equity raises where they had to specifically show specific benchmarks and then basically kind of slowly work up to initial public offering before they kind of um, eventually, you know, listed on public exchanges where they were traded by the public. And so, yeah, there's certainly a lot of, you know, dead-end companies, you know, your pets.com, your, your web vans and all that. But, you know, yeah. at least they had some sort of revenue to kind of show, you know, they had some semblance of a product, however malformed. Well, in many cases, there lot- wasn't really any revenue. It was just they were trading, um, you know, eyeball impressions with each other and, and and inflating their figures. It was kind of, a lot of them were just fictitious revenues, weren't they? But uh there wasn't well, much enough. cash in some of these projects. Yeah. Fair enough. But there actually was a product in some of these things. You know, the eyeball yeah. market is a thing that we see today. You know, people do pay for impressions and that kind of morphed into what would become the advertising industry. So I won't defend like all of the dot com froth, but you know, I think that there's there was a lot more pretense to actually build build real companies and employ real people. And I think with a lot of these cryptocurrencies, you know, the product there is no product. The the token is the product. It's like a you know completely synthetic financial product uh, that's being sold yeah. basically on the the premise of like it will go up in the future. And so like it would be like if you know Palm Pilot or something was was its stock. And that's kind of the, yeah. the moral hazard I see with a lot of these things. So we've kind of evolved towards even a kind of a more abstract form of speculation, where the in some senses that the token is the product itself. So people aren't that bothered about what happens five or 10 years down the line, they, they actually just want the the speculative aspects, the kind of lottery aspects of the of the token. 
Yeah, I mean, the story of, you know, just money for nothing, just number go up is a very compelling story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'd, I, I've, I'm interested in the topic of lotteries because um, there, there seem to be a lot of similarities between what's happening in cryptocurrency and, you know, classical lotteries, which I've seen, I've seen lotteries described as a, a voluntary tax, uh, but also a regressive tax because it, it's kind of poor people waste more money on lotteries than, than the rich do in, in uh, relative terms. Um, and, you know, do you think cryptocurrency is just a kind of uh, iteration of this? It's a, and in some cases a, a global lottery, which whereas most lotteries in the past were, were national or local. Yeah, so it's, it's really hard to kind of pin down what cryptocurrencies actually are financially, because I think um, it's not clear if they're, they're currencies, that there's a strong argument make that they're not actually like currencies. They're sort of not quite the kind of traditional like scams that we see, like Ponzi's. They're, they have some sort of you know, structural similarity to those things. Um, but, you know, you can kind of consider them, you know, if you look at what a cryptocurrency is, it's a it's sort of a speculative financial product um, that kind of has a wealth redistribution function embedded inside of it, which basically you know takes external capital and then basically shifts it around to other people. But it's important to note out the difference between this and like other kind of like traditional financial instruments is that there's no kind of external cash flows on these things, right? It's purely internal. So like the entire payout structure of this is contingent on the input of new investors coming into it. Uh, and all you can see of, say, of a cryptocurrency is that it basically is a, you know, effectively a very giant wealth redistribution function. And there are different kind of wealth redistribution functions embedded inside of these different currencies. Like some of them pay out, you know, money to miners, some of them pay out in these kind of staking pools, other ones pay out in you know, different incentive structures, but they don't actually bring in any new new capital other than just by, you know, the sale of other tokens. And so, yeah, in a sense, you can see a cryptocurrency is basically this kind of mathematical sortition function that basically, you know, will redistribute a bunch of money from, you know, uh, you know, new investors to old investors. Uh, and it's not clear to me that we really know how this actually happens, especially when a lot of the you know, the payout structure is embedded in these kind of exchanges that are kind of notoriously opaque. You know, it's not clear to me how many, how much funds that these exchanges actually hold in reserve to actually pay out people that have, you know, theoretically some paper returns that, you know, the exchange will have. Um, and so that in that sense, you, get, you can kind of compare it to a lottery. It's kind of a, a lottery with a very unclear payout structure that kind of generally looks sort of Ponzi-like. Is how I would describe it. Yeah. I can see the, the similarities between um, uh, cryptocurrencies issued by well, what might what we might uh, let's say during the ICO bubble of 2017, or more recently uh, as part of DeFi projects. I can see the similarities between those tokens and what you describe as a as a classical business. But is that really the case? In, in, in is that really true in the case of let's say Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin is not aiming to be a, a you know it's not a company um, and it's not aiming to produce any particular uh, outcome in the sense of a, that, a, that a corporation might do. I mean, for, for me and for many people, the most obvious comparison is between Bitcoin and and a commodity like gold, which is doesn't really, you know, it's an inert metal. It doesn't do anything. Uh, it doesn't, has very few functions, but it's there as a potential store of value because it can't be inflated, uh, you know, substantially. So, you know, would you not accept that comparison? 
I mean, you're right in the sense that it's a non-productive asset. It doesn't have any external cash flows. In that sense, it's probably more like commodity, like wheat or you know pork bellies or any kind of commodity you want to point out. Um, I'm not sure I would make the comparison to gold because gold, as we all know, is kind of a fairly pathological asset that has a lot of kind of historical baggage associated with it. Um, if you want to compare it to say like a- Yeah, but commodity. it's also been used as money for three or 4,000 oh, sure. years. You know, it's, 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 been, yeah, it's sure. been, been there and- and done it, and it's still there, and it's not going away. So, you know, why would Bitcoin go away? Well, I'd argue that gold is probably the most pathological commodity that you could compare it to. Um, gold actually has a history of being used as money. It was the gold standard up until you know middle of the 19th century, and so I think comparisons that kind of miss the kind of historical context of it. Bitcoin's only been around for 10 years, and quite frankly, there's you know hundreds of other coins that are. Uh, effectively, like Bitcoin. So, if you're going to compare, you know, Bitcoin to gold, you should basically compare Dogecoin to gold, and then then you could go down the whole list and say, you know, why are these all not like gold? And so, I think that kind of yeah. argument kind of reduces down to an absurd premise. Um, but you know, I mean, Bitcoin as a commodity is something that people value; they trade because they think it has value, and that sort of has a sort of the shared delusion that we all <laughs> have that it has value is what gives it value, right? Um, and so, I mean, that's that's how I see the kind of whole argument about Bitcoin being gold. And then you make the second points that you know gold is a store of value, and you know basically I'm going to buy a gold ETF because I think it's going to be uncorrelated with the market as a whole, right? I'm just going to basically just store value long term because that's always historically stored value. Bitcoin, I don't really think has that property as a store of value. It seems to be largely correlated with the market, and its you know volatility makes it you know a fairly you know unstable store of value, if any. Yeah, I mean that's certainly true, isn't it? The, the last year or two, Bitcoin's become much more heavily correlated with uh, with the stock market and tech stocks in particular, which uh, I guess removes some of its uh, store of value argument. You know, plus the volatility, as you point out, is very is very high. Um, yeah. But um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about the impact of cryptocurrencies on your area of work because uh, clearly cryptocurrencies have had a you know quite a sizable impact on hardware they've, they've contributed to global uh, shortage of computer chips what impact have cryptocurrencies had on on the software business you know and the way software engineers work are they are people all being um incentivized to jump into very highly paid jobs at, at DeFi startups you know do, uh, are professional standards changing you know what have you noticed there yeah it's definitely had a kind of outsized impact on the software profession um i'd say my business like Traditional financial services um, is largely kind of not really touched by the people aren't settling, you know, intercompany lending with crypto anytime soon. Um, but you know, it's it's had a market on the uh, impact on the hardware market for sure. Um, it's basically impossible to buy like a physical graphics processing unit because these things all get basically snatched up by the the mining market. And so that's having kind of an outsized impact on things like, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, because people that are doing these kind of very specialized domains that require specialized hardware can't actually purchase the devices they need to actually do the work. Um, it's had an outsized impact on, uh, you know, just capital formation around new ventures inside of the United States, at least. Um, it seems like there's a lot of capital flowing into, you know, uh, cryptocurrency startups and that's having an outsized impact on you know just uh, you know this the set of companies that can actually even be built and funded these days uh there seems to be a lot of venture interest in uh cryptocurrency companies and i use the term very loosely there um and um yeah i mean um i don't see a direct impact on you know 
banking so much anytime soon, but on software itself, you know, we're starting to see hardware just get snatched up and, you know, um, it's not good for the because that ultimately just trickles down to everything else in IT. So like if the cost of GPUs goes up and the cost of hard drives goes up and the cost of servers goes up, then you know ultimately that passes down to anybody that uses any kind of like cloud computing service and prices will just go up across the industry. And so in a sense that even if you aren't even like touching cryptocurrency, you're gonna see it start to propagate down, you know, through the market in the form of like inflated prices for anything that touches, you know, servers or cloud computing. So it's contributing to inflation, basically. Of a specific sector, yeah. I mean, you've also seen the kind of articles in the last couple of days that a lot of cloud computing services that used to offer like free tiers for things like um, testing services for software, they used to basically offer free computing, have been kind of hijacked by you know crypto miners that want to serendipitously kind of hijack these these free computing resources and use them to basically just extract you know CPU time in terms of tokens. And so that's having an impact across uh, cloud computing services. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you, you know, you're concerned about lack of auditability, lack of controls in the way some of these software projects are being uh, put together. I, 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 I mean, in general, are, are these not open source projects where people can go in and audit the code and see what's, what's been done and, and check it out? I mean, is, is, is it not generally speaking a, 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 a kind of activity that's open for outsiders to to query and to test and check. Oh, I mean, certainly the software is. I mean, you can go into the Bitcoin code base. It's on GitHub and browse through every single line of code and see, you know, if there's any kind of, um, you know, any kind of foul play or any kind of malicious actors or anything there. Um, but I think really what these things become problematic is when they kind of go into the wild and it's not clear when they actually touch like real infrastructure if that real infrastructure is actually you know, compliant with the, you know, the intent of the the code. And, you know, we've seen a lot of these, these, you know, stable coins and things that are kind of, you know, the code is all open source and everything, but there's a kind of governance structure around them, which is basically controlled by like one or two people. And it has to be tied to several, you know, bank accounts that happen to exist in the real world. And I think where the fraud actually yeah. occurs is not so much in the code per se, but in the governance structure around the projects. And it's just the auditing of, you know, alleged reserves or you know the actual bank accounts that hold the you know actual money of these things and i think if there yeah, are frauds it's around the lack of it's a challenge auditing. isn't it for regulators and p- those people looking at looking at the governance because um many of these um projects operate well let's say take stable coins as an example you know, they operate through the people operating them you know have used have either disguised their ownership or made it very difficult for outsiders to check what's going on. I mean, I, I can see how difficult it must be for people responsible for the financial systems infrastructure to keep a handle of what's going on, what's going on, um, particularly since things, these things are growing quite dramatically in size. So it's not something they can put off now. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, so my, my business is overseen by the FCA here in the UK, but I think a lot of these, you know, cryptocurrency projects are kind of set up in jurisdictions that are intentionally rather opaque so that they kind of avoid any kind of you know regulatory scrutiny around the kind of activities of the corporation and i think to me that seems like a very you know kind of shady way of doing business like i don't, I don't want to be you know <laughs> transacting with somebody out of the bahamas or the cayman islands you know that's just 
you know, prima facie has a kind of certain smell to it. And I think, you know, when these projects are all set up in, you know, jurisdictions that are sort of, you know, rather, you know, <laughs> rather gray and kind of opaque, then I think we should be kind of, you know, concerned about, uh, you know, what's actually going yeah. on. And a lot of them are set up, you know, in that way intentionally, you know, allegedly for like tax efficiency yeah, sure. reasons, but, you know, a lot of it's, yeah. it's a bit shady, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 clearly not a level playing field between the people from the traditional financial system and the newcomers. So it's going to be challenging to to make it into a level playing field. I imagine. Yeah, certainly, it's it's a challenge for regulators, and I think you know regulators are always just intentionally very slow in wrapping their heads around these things. And you know, even in traditional financial services, if there's some new product that's being offered, it takes them kind of like you know five six years to kind of fully wrap their heads around these things. And with crypto, I think that that gap is like maybe ten years behind where we actually have some yeah. some understanding. Yeah. Uh, so, how do you think this is all going to play out, Stephen? Do you think it's going to you know continue growing until there's a some kind of major scandal or a, or a bust that brings the whole thing down, or is it just going to, you know, are we facing several more years of, of, of this kind of gray area between the traditional system and the, and the crypto monetary system with lots of rough edges that are, you know, giving opportunities for people probably to arbitrage things, to take advantage of those uh, unclear rules. And what, what, you know, what, what's your gut feel as to how we, how things progress from here? Well, it's very difficult to say. And if I said I could predict the entire <laughs> how this is all going to play out, I'd probably be fooling myself. Um, but I think what we've seen with the future is probably correlated with the past. And I think what we've seen with these things is they kind of go through a very large boom and bust cycle. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably at the top of what I would call kind of one of these hype cycles. Um, and I think with the new administration coming in with the United States, um, I think they're probably one of the most anti-crypto administrations I've seen so far. Uh, from their kind of public statements. And I think any kind of the sort of theoretical value that these products offer to consumers, I think is only because of sort of regulatory arbitrage um, and because of their sort of opaque, bubbly nature <laughs> that they're kind of offering just, you know, effectively what are, you know, lotteries to to consumers disguised as financial products. And so I think that regulators in the States are probably going to crack down. And I think that most of NATO is probably going to follow suit quite after. And then the the value proposition about kind of you know seamless international money movement is probably going to kind of fade away or become kind of tightly controlled and then there's not going to really be much purpose in really holding these things uh, as compared to you know other traditional assets and so I think that they're going to kind of you know shrink down to a much smaller version of themselves um, maybe some of the ideas will percolate down into financial services we'll see some kind of improved straight through processing around some you know central bank clearing and that kind of stuff but I think for the most part I think they're kind of fairly irrelevant on the scale of history I think they're just kind of a you know a longer f- sort of form of a bubble that will kind of pop and then leave not much left behind yeah so one more for the history books of financial manias and crashes i think it'll be a very long-running bubble and i think the market's going to be fairly irrational for quite some time but i think once the regulation comes in on these things and they're registered as you know most of them are going to probably be classified as securities then i think that there's going to be a kind of very traditional kind of broker dealer system around these things and that a lot of the sort of illicit use cases and money laundering and that kind of stuff is just going to kind of fade into the back work and the value will probably collapse down to you know a much smaller version of what it is and then they're going to be kind of regarded as sort of a a quirky kind of asset class that most people aren't probably terribly interested in yeah 
Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for uh, sharing your skeptical views. It's, a, you know, a, a, I guess, a contrarian view in the current market, but it's very interesting to, to hear it and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, I'll let history be the judge there. So take care, Paul. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah, you too. Let's see. I look forward to seeing what happens. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.